Well, like uh, many of you, when Stephanie and I get home uh, at the end of our workday during the week, we kind of talk about our day, maybe not formally uh, sitting down, but certainly informally. Uh, and uh, we'll talk about, you know, all of the stupid stuff from our day, um, the exciting stuff, the, the, the routine stuff, or whatever. And, and to be honest, uh, we find that nine, out of, uh, nine times out of ten, uh, there's nothing particularly extraordinary about what happens most days. Uh, and isn't that uh, how nine, of, nine out of ten days are? I, I mean, like 90% of our life is, let's just be honest, it, it's, it's just mundane. Uh, it's routine. We do the same thing we, that we do every day uh, with the same people that we do those same things with every day. So we just have a, 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 a lot of very mundane days. Well, what we're going to look at today in the Gospel of John as we continue in our series are three days uh, in Jesus' life, and two of them could really be described as kind of just mundane, everyday days, and then one of those days uh, was rather extraordinary. Uh, And yet, in reading the Bible or living our own lives, we have this tendency uh, to let the extraordinary eclipse the mundane. And yet where we live most of our lives is in the mundane. In fact, even reading through this section, we see that John put it in here for a reason, that even in the mundane, we can see that there is something rather extraordinary. And so what I'm going to do is I'm just going to read straight through the portion of Scripture about two mundane days first, and we'll deal with that. And then we'll read about the extraordinary day, and we'll deal with that. So if you have your Bible with you, you can turn your way over to John chapter 1. You'll also find the text on page 7 in your worship guide. And we're going to be starting at verse 35, where we left off last week. It says this, the next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following. By the way, that means that they were literally following Jesus. It wasn't like some metaphorical uh, following. No, they were just following Jesus down the road. Jesus turned and saw them. And following him and said to them, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying. And they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. And one of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ, and he, and he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee, and he found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. And Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. And Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? 
Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Okay, so two just kind of ordinary, mundane uh, days. Um, I, I think you could summarize uh, them this way. Uh, Jesus is walking somewhere. He met some guys. He said, hey guys, you want to come with me? They go, okay. And then they invite some guys and they say, hey, we've got, you've got to come and see this guy. Let's just go follow him. And that's the kind of the whole story uh, of those two days. And it's easy when we're reading scripture like that to just kind of go, okay, yeah, Jesus found some of his disciples. Let's just move on to the really good stuff that comes in the next chapter starting in chapter two. But, but if we do that, we miss something really important. As I was reading through uh, this portion of scripture, these two mundane days, I realize that in these few verses, John uses seven titles to describe Jesus. Seven. And these seven different titles, all taken together, provide a very robust, what we call Christology, a theology of who Jesus is, embedded in this mundane passage. And it starts when John the Baptist sees Jesus and he points him out and says, Behold the Lamb of God. So this is the first title we see. He's the Lamb of God. Now, what, is, what does that mean? What's the significance of Jesus being called the Lamb of God? Well, it really takes us all the way back to a story uh, way back in the book of Exodus in the Old Testament. And what happened there was the Israelites were slaves in Egypt, and Pharaoh had kept them in slavery for hundreds of years. And then God selected an Israelite by the name of Moses and told Moses, I want you to go to Pharaoh, the most powerful political ruler in the world, and I want you to tell him to let the Jews go free. And Pharaoh did not listen to this guy who's telling uh, him the, to do this, right? And so God says to, Pharaoh, uh, to Moses, I, I, I'm going to send a plague onto the land that, so that he knows that I mean business. And so he begins to throw down plague after plague upon Egypt, nine in total. I mean, plagues like locusts all over the place. You know, plagues like f- frogs. Now, you think, you know, how can frogs be a plague? But just imagine a squishy carpet of frogs covering all of Egypt. That's, that's kind of gross, right? Or, and the Nile uh, turning to blood. And all kinds of plagues like this. And Pharaoh just, just hardened his heart. It actually says that God hardens uh, his heart, but that's a whole other, other sermon uh, on its own. So Pharaoh's heart was hard through this entire season. And so after nine plagues, God says, okay, here's what I want you to do. I want every Israelite family to find a lamb. And not just any lamb, I want them to find a pure and spotless lamb. And then at twilight, at that moment when the sun just dips below the horizon, at that exact same moment, I want every family to slaughter that lamb. 
I want, and I want you to take the blood from that lamb, and I want you to put it on the doorposts of your house, on, on both the sides and, and across the top section. And then I want you to, to, to throw that lamb into the fire and start cooking it up and roasting it. And I want you to roast the whole thing. And then I want you to eat the whole thing. Don't leave any of it. And I want you to eat it with unleavened bread, which is bread without yeast and a bunch of bitter herbs. And God didn't just tell them what he wanted them to eat. He told them what he wanted them to wear. He said, while you're eating this, I want you to wear clothes as if you're ready to go on a journey. I want you to have your belt fastened about you. I want you to have sandals on your feet. I want you to to have your staff in your hand. And I know that your mom always said, don't eat quickly, but I want you to eat quickly. And I want you to eat this very fast as if you're getting ready to go. And at midnight, I will send my angel over all of Egypt. And the firstborn son of every family, including the animals, will die. But if I see blood on the doorposts, I will pass over you. Listen uh, listen to this. This is is Exodus uh, Exodus 12. He says, The blood shall be a sign for you on the house where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever, and you shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. In other words, God was saying, this plague is going to work. This plague of the firstborn sons dying is going to work. And, and, and it will show that you are my people because when I see the blood of the sacrificial lamb, I will pass over you. And so John the Baptist, standing there in the river, he sees Jesus coming toward him and points to him and says, Behold, the Lamb of God. Now that only makes sense after the cross, right? Because At the cross, that's when we begin to understand that Jesus was the spotless lamb. He is the one that that lived a completely sinless life and then died on the cross as our sacrifice. Even though he did nothing wrong, he died for us. And and so when his blood is applied metaphorically to our lives, we are covered by his blood. When God sees his blood... He passes over us. And so that's what we're saying. It's what we're saying is that the Passover lamb of Exodus was a picture of what Jesus would ultimately do. That when God sees him, his judgment passes over us, and now we have eternal life. So that's the first title that is given of Jesus. He is the Lamb of God. And then some guys came up to Jesus, the ones that were now following him from John the Baptist, and they say, Rabbi, where are you staying? Literally asking him, where, you know, you know, where, where are you going? Where, where are you staying? There's nothing fancy in that statement. They're, you know, where, where are you headed? Because we're following you now, apparently. And they call him Rabbi because he was a teacher. They had followed John the Baptist, and John the Baptist had been their rabbi. And then John said, stop following me, go follow him. They said, Then they said, okay, and and now they're just kind of attaching themselves to another teacher. And, And that is one of the things that Jesus is. He is a good teacher. He's not he's not just that. Down in verse 41. Uh Simon was told by his brother, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. Now The entire arc of the entire Bible says that one day a Messiah would come to save. 
This is all the way back in the book of, of, of Genesis, the first book of the Bible. From that point forward, there was going to be a, this Messiah, this Christ, who would one day come to save. And so that's why everybody knew what he was talking about when he said, hey, listen, we found this guy. We found the Messiah that everyone has been waiting for. And they all knew what Philip said when, when he said to Nathaniel, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets wrote. That's the fourth description of Jesus. By the way, here's a great way to think about the Bible. The Old Testament is like a whole bunch of arrows pointing to Jesus, anticipating the fact that Jesus would come. And the New Testament is a whole bunch of arrows pointing back toward Jesus, saying this is how we live our lives in light of Jesus. This is how we respond because Jesus is the Messiah. So really, the entire arc of, of Scripture points like this to Jesus. And that's why in every sermon that we preach here at Redeemer, whether we're preaching um, Leviticus or we're preaching John, we end up talking about Jesus. You know, periodically, someone... Uh, will ask me if I ever uh, reuse old sermons that I've preached before. And the answer is very rarely. Uh, and that's not because I don't want to. It, it, it's because I go back and read some of my old sermons, and, and some of them just suck. Um, uh, the, the, and one of the reasons is a lot, a lot of them, I kind of forgot about Jesus. I find sermons where there's some good teaching out of the text, but it's, it's, it's rightly be said that if you can preach the same sermon in a Jewish synagogue or, or a, a Muslim uh, mosque, then it's not a Christian sermon. You have to get to Jesus. It might be truthful. You might be actually talking about what the text says. There could be some good explanation of the Old Testament. But if you don't ultimately get to Jesus, it misses the Christian component. It's all about Jesus because he is the Messiah. He's the one that every one of the law and the prophets talked about. But he's not just that. He is, as Nathaniel said to him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. Jesus is fully divine. He is 100% God. And he goes on and says, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Now, Jesus' Jewishness cannot be overstated. There was this promise made to a guy in the Old Testament by the name of David who was, who was the king. And, and, and the promise to David was that one day a descendant of his would arise who would sit on the throne of David and who would rule for all of eternity. The angels who predicted Jesus' birth in, in, in Matthew and Luke both said, that's him. It's Jesus. He's not just the son of God. He is the king of Israel and not only that, but Jesus gives himself this title in the last verse in this section, the Son of Man. Jesus is the Son of Man. He's not only 100% God, he's 100% man. Now all the disciples that were hanging out right there, they would have heard the term Son of Man. And because they knew their Old Testaments of the Bible, the Law and the Prophets, they would have remembered that term. See, Daniel, who was who was a prophet, he was, he was given a vision in, in Daniel 7. He, he said, I saw, in the night, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. 
And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And so when Jesus said that he was the Son of Man, he was letting them know that he, he was the fulfillment of this prophecy. Now, how is Jesus all of this? Well, he says it in the last verse for, in John 1. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. What in the world, I mean, does that mean? Does that mean that the angels are just kind of walking up and down Jesus? I mean, what does that mean? Well, again, they would have known what that meant because they would have studied Genesis. And if you go all the way back uh, to the first book in the Bible, uh, there's this passage in Genesis chapter 28 about what is called Jacob's Ladder. Uh, Genesis 28, let me read a, a few verses here. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. And taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in the place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth. And the top of it reached to heaven, and behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. So what Jacob has is this vision that there is somewhere a ladder. There is somehow a connection between heaven and earth. There's, there's, there's somehow this connection between the spiritual world and this physical world in which we live. And Jesus was declaring to his disciples, I am it. I am that ladder. And so there you go. We have this huge, robust theology, this, this Christology. What does John say through this passage about Jesus? He says that Jesus is fully God, full, the fully God, fully human, Jewish Messiah King that the law and the prophets spoke about who taught us how far we are from him and laid down his life so that he could bring us close. That's all right there in John 1. Jesus is the Savior of the world that we've been waiting for. But that's not all that John does. In the description of the mundane, he also shows us how God always uses people to bring other people to Jesus. Did you catch that through this whole section? There, there was John the Baptist who said, hey, look, it's the Lamb of God. And then there's Andrew who, who ran to his brother and said, hey, we found the Messiah. And then Jesus found Philip, and Philip found Nathaniel and told Nathaniel, we have found the Messiah. And did you catch that fun part, by the way, with, with Philip and Nathaniel and, and Jesus? It says, Philip found Nathaniel and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of, of Joseph. In other words, he's telling them, you know Joseph's kid? Remember, Joseph is, is, is Jesus' stepdad. He's like, we found the Messiah. You're not going to believe it. It's Joe's kid. And Nathaniel said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Wait, wait a minute, Nazareth? Is it possible that something good could have come out of Nazareth? And, and what does he say? He says, come and see. Let me introduce you to this guy from Nazareth. 
And Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him, and he said, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Jesus says, I know you inside. I know that you're not a liar. I know that you've got truth in you. I, 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 I can tell that about you. And his response I love, he says, How do you know me? And Jesus answered him, Well, before Philip called you, when you were sitting under the fig tree, I saw you. Now, no one knows exactly what, that, what this means. Did he, did he have a vision and he saw him under the fig tree? Or did he actually see him under the fig tree? We, we, we don't know for sure what, what that means. But the, but the guy was totally impressed that Jesus saw him under the, uh, under the tree. Not impressed by the way that Jesus saw into his heart and said that he was a righteous man. He didn't care about that. He was like, you, you totally saw me under the tree. Nathaniel said, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Because you saw me under the tree. And Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe you will see greater things than these? I just love, love that passage. So two mundane days. Jesus picks up a bunch of disciples. And John tells us a lot about who Jesus is. Let's go on to the extraordinary day. John 2. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples, and when they ran a, the, the wine ran out, the mother of, of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples. And they stayed there for a few days. Now, this is an extraordinary day because this is Jesus' first miracle. So let's set the stage for this miracle. If you think weddings are big now, weddings were really big uh, back then. They were like seven-day um, affairs uh, in multiple locations with multiple outfits. Some of you are like, yeah, and some of you are like, that sounds terrible. But this was the, the, a whole big thing. And, and what you had to do is you had to keep everybody entertained. You had to keep everybody fed. You had to keep everybody drinking. You had to have this whole thing. And so what... What you do is what any good party host does. You, you put out the good stuff first because if people have had the, you know, enough of the good stuff, they don't care about the other stuff. It's like putting out, you know, it's like putting out the Pliny the Elder. You, know, you only throw down one of those and then you can move to Bud Light and nobody cares, right? It's the same basic principle. And, 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 and so somebody didn't plan well because... Not only did they run out of the good stuff, they also ran out of the bad stuff, and there was no wine left at all. And so Jesus' mom comes up to him and says, Jesus, can you do something about this? 
Now, I don't believe Jesus' mom was asking him to perform a miracle. I think she was just a good lady who didn't want the bride and the groom to be embarrassed. And she saw that they didn't have enough to drink. And so she's like, hey, Jesus, can you just, can you just handle this situation? And I love Jesus' response. He says, woman, which, by the way, I faked you out with the tone. That's not his tone. Because we see that word show up again when Jesus is hanging on the cross. When he's hanging on the cross, he looks down and sees his mom, and he sees the apostle John who wrote the book of John, and, and he says, woman, behold your son. And so what he did in that moment is he tenderly took care of his mom for the rest of, his, of her life. She said, John, John's going to take care of you now. There's a tenderness when he says that. Woman, my time hasn't yet come. What does that mean? Well, there's a lot of debate about this one. I'll, I'll tell you where I used to land. I used to, I, I used to think it was, this was kind of like Mary forcing him into, um, uh, you know, a kind of her forcing him into a ministry kind of thing. Kind of like she's like, well, they need wine. He's like, Mom, it's not my time yet. It's not, not, we're not ready yet. But fine, I'll, you know, I'll do a miracle if that's what you, you, you want me to do, right? Like, that's how I used to, 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 to take it. But Jesus didn't talk to his mom like that, so it couldn't be that. So what's going on? Well, I think the key is, is that there's a word picture and embedded in the Bible about the Messiah. And it's all over the prophets. John the Baptist used it last week. The Apostle Paul uses it throughout his writings. Jesus even calls himself this. And, and that is that one day Jesus would be the groom. It's this picture of Jesus at a, a wedding feast as a groom. And I want you to, um, to hold on to that um, as we go to a prophecy in Isaiah. In Isaiah 25, it says this, On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, a rich food of full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. So we've got, we've got wine twice in the list. There's, that's a lot of wine. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people will be t- he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God, we have waited for him, that he might save us. This is the Lord, we have waited for him, let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. So this is a prophecy of what the Messiah would one day do, that one day he would throw this huge party at the end of all things. Now hold on to that, and now you go all the way back to the end of the Bible, John the Apostle who wrote who wrote John, would one day talk about the end in the book of Revelation. And, and this is what, he would, what he, he would say. And then I heard what seemed like to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty pearls, uh, peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. 
This is what will one day happen. One day Jesus, as the groom, will throw the biggest wedding feast that will have all of the foods, will have all of the wines. In fact, it, it, it was at the first Lord's Supper when he instituted the Lord's Supper that we celebrate when we, when we take communion. Jesus even said to his guys then, he says, I'm not going to touch wine again until that party, till that day. That's when I'll do it. And so Jesus is looking forward to that day. So what's going on? Well, one commentator I was reading this week He has a theory, and I like it. He thinks that Jesus was thinking about that day when he was there in John 2. Why? Well, isn't that what happens at weddings? You know, when you go to a a wedding, uh, when I go to a wedding, not when I conduct them, but when I'm just invited as a guest, when I'm sitting there and, 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 and watching the wedding take place, I often think about my own wedding. When you go to a wedding, you, 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 you kind of think back. You remember what your wedding day was like. And before you're married, you often look forward to your wedding when you're, when you're at a wedding. And we've got Jesus right now about to launch into his ministry. Isn't it a fitting start that he begins his ministry at a wedding? Looking forward to the end of all of the, to the end of days when he will throw the biggest wedding. We don't know for sure that that's what's going on, but, but he has this interaction with his mom, and his, his mom says, okay, guys, just do whatever he tells you. And, and, and then what Jesus tells them to do is crazy. He's like, you know, there are these six big, those big, six big jugs that are outside that are used for purification. And by the way, purification means that the Jews would use these things for all kinds of ceremonial washings, and no one in their right mind would drink from them. But Jesus says, let's drink from that. And he goes, I want you to fill these up to the brim. And we don't know if Jesus turned all of the jugs into wine, but if he did, that would be the equivalent of approximately 50 to 75 cases of wine. Just think about this for a second. In a small little town wedding festival, Jesus possibly made between 600 and 900 bottles of wine. And it's so good that when they bring it in, they're like, ah, you've been holding out on us. That should have been first. We should have had that first. Now, that that presents the really important theological question, what the heck, Jesus? Like, why would Jesus have his first miracle be making 600 to 900 bottles of wine for people who already drank all of the wine? Why, what was Jesus doing? I believe he is reflecting at the beginning of his ministry the big feast that is going to be at the end. And what I love about this, and never saw this before as I read this passage, is how private this miracle was. I guess my, 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 the image that I always had was that this is some big public miracle. But John even goes and says, he says, hey, only the servants knew. So at this party, Jesus doesn't do this big flashy miracle. The servants knew. His mom might have known. I don't know if she knew or not. His disciples end up finding out why. Well, that's the important reason he did the miracle in the first place. It wasn't to make his mom happy, it was for his disciples. Look at at this in in John 2.11. This, the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana 
in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. You see, the purpose of miracles in the gospel accounts were to point at the divinity of Jesus and prove that he was God. This is the whole point. And who were the first recipients that he had to show that to? These disciples that he just called. And so here he performs this quiet, really kind of extraordinary miracle in the context of a very mundane everyday wedding that anyone would have in any of a countless number of different towns around the world on that particular weekend. And those who were brought to him, they saw and they believed. What did they believe? They believed that Jesus was the fully God, fully human, Jewish, Messiah, King, that the law and the prophets spoke about and taught us how we are so far from him and laid down his life as a sacrifice to bring us close. I've been thinking about this all week, thinking, okay, this is, this is interesting stuff, but um, what does this have to do with me and my life and how I live? I mean, it's a good story. Well, I think there are two essential ideas that I grabbed out of this. And the first is, and this is for every one of us this morning, regardless of what we, we might believe, and it's this. It's crucial that we believe in not just any Jesus, but the real Jesus of Scripture. I mean, John is trying to convince us of a certain Jesus, trying to convince us of a scriptural picture of who Jesus is, that he is who he, he really is. And so even in these early chapters, before he gets into what Jesus says and what Jesus does, he presents to us who Jesus is, that he is the, this fully God, fully human Jewish Messiah King that the law and the prophets talked about, the one who taught us how far we are from him and then laid down his life so that we could be brought close to him. This is who he is. And we need to accept him that way. Otherwise, we'll never let him call the shots in our lives. We'll call the shots in if we get to define who Jesus is. That's the first thing that struck me. And the second is for those of us this morning who are followers of Jesus. I think we need to be more proactive in looking for opportunities in the mundane days of our lives to say to those around us, come and see. Did, did you notice how many times that, that little phrase just shows up here? You, you, you don't think anything good can come out of Nazareth? Come and see. The guys came up to Jesus and say, where are you going? Come and see. And, and, and sometimes that's all we've got to say. See, a, a lot of times when it comes to sharing our faith with our friends, we're nervous because we think we've got to to do all the saving. We, we, you know, we've got to do it right. We, or, or, you, know, you know, we have to, you know, if we haven't done it right, we've, we will totally screw the thing up. But all we've got to do is, is, is say, come and see. One of the great uh, 19th century evangelists was a man by the name of D.L. Moody. Um, you may or may not have ever heard of him, but Moody Bible Institute in Chicago was named after him. But D.L. Moody was like this master evangelist. He would have crowds of thousands of people uh, show up, and with no amplification, he'd preach to the crowds. And, and it, it wasn't just that the crowds would show up, but they would, you know, but that thousands of people would give their lives to Christ as he preached. I mean, he was just a uniquely gifted evangelist. During the Civil War, 
uh, he went down to the front lines because he realized that if he could go get down there by the front lines, he could find soldiers from both sides of the Civil War who were dying of their wounds and he could perhaps share the gospel with them and perhaps save some before they passed away. And, and, and he put it, his life on the line nine times during the Civil War and really in a lot of ways started what has become the chaplaincy movement. He, he really was just this amazing guy. So how did D.L. Moody become a Christian? Well, when he was 17, he was an absolute punk. Uh, He moved to Boston, and he couldn't find a job. He just couldn't find a a job, keep a job, couldn't make it work. And his uncle, who owned a shoe store, uh, finally said to him, all right, I'll I'll hire you. But, But it comes with one condition. You come to church with me. And you don't just come to church with me. You go to Sunday school. And by the way, uh, at that time, Sunday school was a, a new revolutionary uh, concept back then, this idea of, of classes where people would come and learn about Jesus before they went to church. So he's like, I want you to go to Sunday school, and I want you to go to church with me. And so he went, because he needed the job. Well, his Sunday school teacher was a guy by the name of Edward Kimball, and <laughs> Edward described D.L. Moody as the most spiritually dark person he had ever met in his life. And he said of all the people that he ever uh, met in his life, D.L. Moody was the least likely ever to convert to Christianity. That was the conclusion from his Sunday school teacher. But, but he thought about uh, Moody um, all the time and he said, listen, he is so far from Jesus I have to share the gospel with him. I've got to tell him more about Jesus. I've got to do this. And so he decided that one day he's going to go down to the shoe store to tell D.L. Moody more about Jesus. And he went down there and he chickened out. And so then he's pacing back and forth on on the street, walking by the the building, uh, you know, you know, looking in, and, and he sees Moody working with a bunch of, of other teenagers in there, and, he, and he's like, oh man, now if I go in there and tell him about Jesus, now he's going to be embarrassed in front of his friends, and if he's embarrassed in front of his friends, he's never going to come to Christ. And so, so he, 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 you know, he kept leaving and, and kept going back, and finally he says, okay, I'm just doing it, and he burst into the store, and Moody wasn't there. And so he went into the back and he found Moody in the back boxing up boots and he was just like I have to talk to you and he presented what he said was the worst gospel presentation he had ever presented he was unclear he missed really important points he walked out of there and said no one could come to Christ based on how bad that presentation was but after he left Moody gave his life to Christ and the rest is history What does that mean? Sometimes in the mundane days of our lives, we just need to have the courage and bravery to tell people, come and see. And we may screw the whole thing up. We might do it wrong, but you know what? We're not the ones who save. We don't save anybody. We simply bring people to him and Jesus saves. Jesus, who is the fully God, fully human, Jewish Messiah King that the law and the prophets wrote about who taught us how far we are from him and then gave his life so that we might be brought near. He does all the work. We just say, hey, come and check this guy out. Let's pray.